You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life Moscow. How are you guys doing? Good. We are in the middle of our One Big Story series. Here's the idea. The idea is taking eight weeks to go through the whole narrative of the scriptures. This is something we want to get better at. We did this a couple of years ago, a few years ago. We went through the story series. That took us about nine months. So eight months, eight weeks, different things. A little bit trickier to compact this thing into eight weeks, but we want to always be coming back to this idea because we should be able to communicate and understand how God's story works, the narrative arc of God's story. It, it is, especially for our children, all the way up through college students, uh, from, from our children today through millennials, the, the importance to be able to communicate ideas through the idea of narrative is incredibly important. So while a lot of us grew up in a world where we were taught the systematic doctrinal truths of the faith, which is awesome, it's great, uh, to be able to communicate God's narrative as a narrative is more impactful, particularly for the younger generations, because they want to know how to step into a narrative. They understand that they have a narrative. We need to be able to communicate God's narrative so we can show how the two intersect. Does that make sense? So we're trying to take eight weeks and walk through the story of the scriptures and make sure that what we're learning here on Sunday morning is the same thing that your children and your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephews and your neighbors and your whatever. Like we should all as one big church family be able in this series to have a a conversation about the same ideas around lunch today. Uh, That's the idea. And at home during the week and all of those things, we should be able to be working on an idea together as a family. Church family, nuclear families, all of that. So we started walking through the narrative with week one was about goodness. Like you have to start with Genesis chapter one because that's where God starts his story. God starts his story by affirming the goodness of his creation and trying to tell us that this is where the action is, not somewhere else. Like, this is the world that he's redeeming. This is the world that he's crazy about. Not some other place somewhere else. This one. Are we preaching? Okay. It is not about some glad morning I can get. This story is not a story of escapism. Okay? We cannot make this faith about getting somewhere else. This faith from the beginning of the story is about God's love for this world and his massive redemption project to put this world back together, which is all well and good, but the immediate thought comes up with, okay, so this world is good, but this world is really jacked up. True. So you have all of this follow-up, and that was week two where we talked about broken. Where does this brokenness come from? It comes from this mistrust where, where God invites us to trust this idea about the goodness of creation, but we instead listen to other voices. And so we talked about those whispers and those voices that we we have to crush in our lives. And that was that idea. And then in week three, last week, we talked about promise. Because in this tension between the goodness of creation and our insecurities and fears, God comes into that and he says, I've got a promise for you, but his promises often come in the form of invitations. Like God usually doesn't just make promises in a vacuum. God's promises are usually tied to an an invitation to be in relationship with him. Like if you'll join me in this work that we're doing together, if you'll join me in this redemptive project, I can promise you that this is what's going to be experienced. It may not be easy, but this is where we're headed. If you don't want to join me, all bets are off. 
But there's this promise that doubles as an invitation. And so that's where we looked last week. And then this week, we wanted to talk about God's faithfulness. Because how does that promise, how does that go? In the, how does that go in your life? How does that go in, in, in the history of God's people? God says, hey, I got a promise. You join me, we'll put the world back together. How has that gone throughout history? A little tricky, right? Doesn't go like, woo, lickety split. Like, it's a little, I just used my, that was a momism right there. Lickety split. Hi, mom. She watches these. Um, maybe we'll post first service instead. So there is this, what was I talking about? There, it, it doesn't go lickety split. It doesn't go perfectly. It's this kind of mess. And so this week is about faithful, God's faithfulness. Because we struggle to be faithful. We're called to be faithful. And, and next week we go, now here's the deal. Your kids are learning this through the story of the Exodus, which is a great story to learn it from. God's faithful deliverance through the Exodus. Like, <laughs> here's the thing. Next week we go to Jesus. So we just skipped 37 books. <laughs> and the Jew in me goes, um, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, I'm going to let the children's ministry be experts about that because I don't know anything about that. But for you big kids, I want to look at the rest of the 37 books today. No big deal. But I think we can do that by taking a look at the book of Judges, which is where we're going to dive in. You guys ready? Okay, here's the deal. The book of Judges shows up in a particular point in history. Um, after that Exodus story that your kids are learning about, after they wander through the desert and build a tabernacle and God teaches them about who they're supposed to be, after 40 years of that, that's a thing, uh, they get put into a promised land, a promised land right in the middle. I call it the crossroads of the earth, right in the middle of the action. Because God said through Abraham, I want to bless how many nations? All of them. I cannot bless all nations if you're over in the corner. I can only bless all nations if I put you right in the middle of the action. And so he takes his people and he puts them literally in that point in human history, in the crossroads of the earth where everybody is going to interact with his people because he wants them to bless all nations. And so he puts them in the middle of the action and says, okay, great. Now we're just going to work the program. And that goes about as well as it always goes. Not super great. And Judges is the story of working the program. So here's the setup out of Judges 2. We'll just go ahead and dive in here and read this. When the Lord raised up Judges, then the Lord raised up Judges, who saved them out of the hands of those raiders. Yet they would not listen to their Judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those. Are you hearing the cycle? There is a cycle of God delivers his people and then they struggle and fall away and then God has to deliver his people. And, that, and hopefully as we're reading this, you are realizing this isn't just their story, but this is our story. Like hopefully you have enough spiritual awareness to be like, hey, this kind of sounds like my life. <laughs> right? Hopefully, hopefully that's a connection that's easy to make. So following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me. What is that? God says, I made them a promise and an invitation. But they rejected that. They didn't want that. 
I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Now, a lot of Bible teachers and Bible scholars, um, when I studied this in Bible college, they all pointed out that this, the book of Judges has a cycle to it. And this kind of, inter- that last passage introduced it to us, but then after that, you're going to see this, pa- this cycle directly referenced with every single judge in the book of Judges. Directly referenced this cycle. Here's the cycle as they've identified it. Okay, we're gonna start at 12 o'clock noon, okay? Israel serves the Lord in peace. Everything's going great. What usually happens when everything's going great in our life? We just continue in steadfast faithfulness. No, we usually struggle with a, a, a pull, a temptation to fall into complacency, to fall into laziness, to fall into selfishness. It's a common, it doesn't mean we have to, it's just as we have seen this throughout thousands of years of human history and the development of God's people. So Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord, so then Israel becomes enslaved. Whether God sends it, sometimes he does, whether it's a consequence of their actions, however that goes, life happens. And so Israel cries out to the Lord. So 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock are like absolute opposites. And so God raises up a judge. And then that judge helps deliver Israel. And then everything is great. But when everything is great, we fall away. And then when we fall away, we become enslaved. And then after that, we cry out because of our enslavement. And so then God raises up a deliverer to help save us. And then we're finally rescued and everything is going great. But then when everything is going great, we fall away, and then you get the idea. There is this cycle that we have all experienced, and you can read about in all of the scriptures, but really see it clearly in the book of Judges. In fact, let's jump to the very next few paragraphs in Judges, and I'll show you how literally the cycle is defined in the scriptures. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to, the Israel, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel. I have a, one of my best friends. He refuses to name his children normal names. And uh, it has to be biblical names, but not just biblical names, like weird biblical names. He has a son he named Othniel. I don't even know what to call him for short. I'm like, OT. I don't know. Like, I'm making stuff up. <laughs> Othniel, son of Kanaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel. Do you see the cycle? Like, I hope so because it's literally doing the cycle with every verse. Like every verse is describing the step of the cycle that you see who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. I wonder what's going to happen next. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Like, this is not confusing. Like, the cycle is literally spelled out for us. And and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. You know it as Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud. I need to call my friend to be like, your next son, Ehud. 
a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and the story goes on and on. But the cycle continues with every single judge, the exact same cycle over and over again. Now, I want to put that cycle on the screen one more time. When I was taught about this cycle in Bible college and elsewhere, anywhere else that I've ever heard anybody teach on it, it's always called the sin cycle. The sin cycle of judges. The sin cycle, you can see why, it's not hard to see why. Obviously the cycle is about our sin. And for a moment, I don't want to take away or ignore the fact that sin is a part of the equation. Is sin a part of the equation? Is sin a part of your equation? Is that a confusion to anybody? I didn't think so. Here's what bothers me. Perspective matters. How come the only side of this diagram that we want to talk about is our sinfulness and not God's goodness? And so you've seen me on the center of this slide. I rename it for all my students the redemption cycle. Same cycle, same exact contents, but I can either focus on my badness or God's goodness. I can either see Genesis 1 or I can see Genesis 3. Both of them completely biblical, only one of them telling the story that God invited us to learn. And what is the thing, by the way, when you look at that? What is the thing that stands out to you? Like, what is the surprising, amazing thing about that cycle? Our sinfulness? Like, is that the shocker? What's the shocker? How, how many times does this cycle go round and round and round? At what point in the story does God forsake his people? Never. The shocking thing about this diagram is that God never stops delivering his people. Ever. The shocking thing about this diagram is God's reckless love. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow it wouldn't light up, no mountain it wouldn't climb up coming after me. No wall it wouldn't kick down, lie it won't tear down coming after me. The reckless love of God, that's what this graph should show us. And yet what we teach people over and over and over again is how stupid and bad you are. Which Aaron and I were talking about this as we prepared for the sermon this week. And what happens when we do that, when this becomes a sin cycle, is this becomes a reminder of all of our shame. And shame never leads you to your redemption. Conviction. But I think the Bible has something to say about that. It's the blank of God that leads us to repentance. What is that? It's the, thank you, kindness of God. I wonder if this matters. You see, shame leads to condemnation. And I feel like the Bible has something to say about condemnation. There is now no condemnation. I'm glad you guys know your New Testament so well. It is important that we see this cycle through the lens of Jesus and the New Testament. Jesus said, everything hangs on one idea, love. Love God, love others. Paul said, all of it hangs on the idea of love. You get to choose how you see this cycle. And you can either see your knuckleheadedness or you can see God's unbelievable, reckless pursuit of you. Now, this is going to continue. It's not just in Judges. It's not spelled out as directly. But let's jump ahead to Isaiah because I want to cover those 37 books. Okay? So we're just going to skip ahead to Isaiah. 
This is, we've used this passage, Isaiah 5. It's about the vineyard. God talks about his people as this big vineyard and he comes looking for good fruit, but he finds only, can anybody remember? Bad, bad, bad fruit. Be'ushim is the Hebrew. So fun to say. Say it. Be'ushim. I came looking for good grapes, but I found only bad grapes. So that's this, that passage ends here. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for zedekah, but instead he heard only za'ekah. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has to, by the way, if you're adding house to house and field to field, tell me how things are going for you. Good. Do you think anybody is like, boy, we're in trouble? They're adding house to house and field to field. They think things are going great. And Isaiah shows up and goes, woe to you who are adding house and house to field to field because you are falling away from the very invitation and promise that God invited you to be a part of. And so you are going to find yourself in the cycle. Now, God's not going to give up on you, but you need to realize what you're participating in because you're participating in something else. Surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. This is a cycle that shows up again and again in Scripture. And at what point in the Old Testament did God give up on his people? He just never gives up. Here's the idea that's showing up in your preschooler's curriculum. Like, I'll have Aaron send me a picture. I'm usually on the road. State of my life right now. I'll say, send me a picture of the preschool, the kids' curriculum. I'll send me a picture of the preschool curriculum. Just to see, I want their big idea to be our big idea from the stage. And I was like, boy, I wonder what they're going to do with this week. Skipping 37 books. Wonder what's gonna, here's, what, here's what your preschooler's curriculum says. God's big story tells us about God's big love. God's big story tells us about, is that how we view the Old Testament? Or do we usually talk about the Old Testament as a big story about God's people's failure? And so thank goodness for Jesus. No, it's one big story. God has always had this undying, reckless love for his people. God's big story tells us about God's big love. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, you're listening to this and you're going, that's great, but I know, I, I, I know a little bit about my Bible, and I know that there's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of struggle, and there's a lot of punishment. Let's talk about punishment for a, most, for a, for a moment while this slide continues to just sit up here. Let's talk about punishment. I think there's a distinction to be made between punishment and discipline. I've learned this as a parent. I think there's lots of ways we can learn this. I don't think parenthood's the only way to do it. But in my life, I have learned more and more and more of this by being a father. That there is something really good about parenthood called discipline. And sometimes discipline involves punishment as part of a larger pursuit of discipline. But if I am a parent operating on my good days from my God-given places... I'm not about punishment. I am ultimately about discipline. Does this make sense? 
Discipline is about shaping our kids into the kind of people we want them to become. Discipline is about doing the appropriate things so that our kids will become. We can call out the potential. We can help shape them and guide them. And sometimes, yes, that discipline involves punishment. Let me talk about my son. Not my daughter, she's perfect, my son. (laughs) My son. (laughs) I'll tell him once. I will tell him twice. My voice decibel level rises. I tell him a third time, and eventually, that's it. No more screen time for the rest of the day, and you would think that the world had fallen apart. (laughs) Sometimes my discipline involves a punishment, because what I'm trying to get him to do is I'm trying to get him to be shaped and molded into the fine young man that I know God has designed him to be. Here's the other piece from your preschooler's curriculum. Here's what else it said. God's wisdom and love far exceeds that of his people. He not only knows what's best for them, he wants what is best for them. So out of his infinite wisdom and big love, God gave his people rules to follow, rules to protect them, guide them, and keep them close to his heart. We understand this. It's exactly what I do with my children. We understand this, and I realize that not all of us had great parents, so the metaphor breaks down for some of us, but work with me. You know you didn't have good parents because you know what good parenting would have looked like, so work with the metaphor for me, okay? That God in his perfect fatherhood wisdom disciplines us and pulls us, but here's what I've also realized about fatherhood. Sometimes I discipline my children because they've done something wrong, and sometimes that involves punishment. Come with me. Sometimes I discipline my children because they're doing something right, and I need to get them to go even further. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes my my little eight-year-old Zeke, he's going to be a leader. He has got this spiritual gift of leadership inside of him. And I know it, and I want to shape that out of him. And sometimes I want to pull that out of him and shape that into him with the help of God. And so sometimes he's doing this thing, and he, he walks right up to the door of his gift. And he pokes his head inside, and then he pulls back because going into it is going to be uncomfortable. And what do I do as a dad? <laughs> because I want to pull out of him all of his potential. Now tell me, anybody who's been the son and you get booted through the door, how does that feel? Ew. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. It hurts. It was hard. But we look back on those moments. And what do we all say to our parents, to our mentors, to our teachers, to people who pushed us through those doors as a form of discipline? We say thank you because you made me into the person you want that that I could be. How come we don't do this with God? How come every time something gets hard, we all assume that God's angry with us? Like we know how to do this with parents, but God is no, like he doesn't know this. He's, of course he knows this. This God of the Bible is not some pagan God who gets angry at his worshipers. He is a loving father pulling out of them and shaping them. Here's what else I know. I know that sometimes there's discipline. Sometimes there's punishment. I also know that sometimes life just happens. My kids get colds. I didn't send the cold. 
I didn't, I didn't orchestrate. It just happens. What I do as a parent is I go, yeah, colds, man, they stink. Let's figure out how to walk through this, get through this. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to help give you medicine. I'm going to get you through this. Is it fun? No. Nobody's ever went through a cold and went, boy, that was a great time. <laughs> Did I send the cold as a parent? Did I orchestrate the cold? Did I? No, but I was there every step of the way as my child dealt with X, Y, and Z. How come we always try to figure out? I'll tell you why. It's because we only see the right side of the diagram. It's a sin cycle. And what we're invited to do is focus on the redemptive side of the cycle and God's amazing big love. Let me close with this passage out of Hebrews. You're going to see that this really wasn't my idea the whole time. <laughs> Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Yes. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, like which one of us in the room is like, I was never disciplined. Like maybe you weren't by your, but life disciplined you. I promise you that. <laughs> then you are not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. In fact, that's the, if some of you are like, well, my parents never disciplined me. Like, you know the dysfunction in that. He, the writer of Hebrews says, if God is a truly good father, you would have to expect his discipline. Because if you didn't receive God's discipline, you wouldn't be legitimate kids of his. Because what father wouldn't ever discipline his kids? A father who didn't care about his kids. And that's not who God is. So you have to assume that God's going to discipline you. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, or not, but I get the point. And we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? You see, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good. Like maybe our earthly fathers made mistakes, but God doesn't. In order that we might share in his holiness, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. For any reason, no matter why it's coming, we never look at discipline and go, ah, yeah. Later, it's painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's big story, if there's anything you can learn from the 37 books we're skipping, it's that God never gave up on his people. God never gave up on his people then. He doesn't give up on his people now. He doesn't give up on you. God's big love, God has bottomless patience, endless patience as you try to figure out how to struggle through. And yes, he steps in and disciplines his kids, especially when my two kids are just beating the tar out of each other. I step in and I put a stop to it. Why? Because I love them. If one of my kids is just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in for the sake not only of disciplining the one who's, but also saving the one who's being. Because why? Because I'm, I'm a father who loves. And so yes, God steps in. Yes, God disciplines but God, this, God never gives up on his kids. God never gives up on his kids. God never gives up on his kids. And if there's one thing we can take away from this, it's that whatever it is that you're going through, I mean, I've had one of those weeks this week, ooh, and I hate even talking about it because I know that my problems are nothing compared to some of you. The problems that some of you bring in with your marriages and, and I think of the benevolence video that was up on the, and, and, and the health problems and like real serious struggles. I had a week where, where an oil change turned into an engine rebuild. You know what I'm talking about? $33 ends up being 4,800 real quickly. 
And I'm like, and it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, I'm even frustrated that, it's actually a huge deal, but I'm, I'm frustrated that, <laughs> I'm frustrated that money and cars dictate my level of contentment when so many people struggle with, so, but I'm not supposed to compare my suffering to yours. I'm just supposed to sit in my cycle and try to learn from it. And so I look to God and I go, God, what is it that I can learn here? At 35 years old, and yes, that's my age, um, there's a lot of gray in that beard. I know, I know. It's all that discipline that I've been having to do. At 35 years old, what is it, God, that I can learn here? And I don't know if God sent me my car problems because he's trying to punish me or dis... Why do we always do that? Like, what if my car is just a cold? God's like, I didn't make the car. You guys did. I didn't send your automobile calamities on you as an act of judgment. But even still, God comes alongside of me and he says, what can we learn from this? God has this unbelievable ability to take horrible things that he either sent or didn't send at all and just come alongside and go, how are we going to do something beautiful with this? And I don't know what I'm going to learn out of this whole thing. It'll probably be more, more stuff about trust and all that kind of stuff. Little things. <laughs> but I'm going to come out of this hopefully a better version of who God made me to be. That is our invitation in God's big story. But enough. I'm, you have your own stuff you brought through the door. Stuff a lot bigger and more complicated than, than issues that I can share personally. But that's, that's what I bring out of my experience. What is it that you bring out of yours? How can we talk about that with our kids? How can we not hide it but wear it and share it at age-appropriate ways so that when they get older, they're like, I've seen God work. I know something about God, and that's that he never gave up on my parents, and they went through some stuff, but he never gave up on his kids, and he's not going to give up on me. Now, we need to head to the Lord's table. If you're visiting with us today, when we celebrate the Eucharist, it's an open table. So if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your family, just take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, and hold on to it, and we're going to take it together here in just a moment. As we do that, we got some implications to work through. I got five. I know what you're thinking, Marty, you can't do that. We usually do four, sometimes three. We prefer three. I don't care. <laughs> We're doing five. I'm in charge. Five books of Moses, five implications. Seems like a great idea to me. All right. First implication I worked really hard on. I took it right out of the preschool curriculum. God's big story tells us about God's big love. Now, here's what I want to ask you guys. Please don't write that one off as just like, yeah, we preached on that already. No, 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 please take this as an implication that has huge significance. When you read your Bibles, and I hope that we're all doing that more and more and more as we become the people that God wants us to be, as you wrestle with passages where God's people are walking into a promised land to conquer others, and there's genocide, and there's all this crazy stuff, when you're reading passages about woe to you, and here comes the destruction, and... and Remember that God's big story is ultimately about love. According to Jesus, according to Paul, according to our New Testament, however it is that we're supposed to read that, we're supposed to get God's love out of it. So if it doesn't seem like God's love, keep wrestling with it, keep reading it, keep searching for it, because God's big story is about God's big love. And I know that biblical scholars aren't going to all agree on that, but Jesus did. So, okay. 
Next implication. God asks us to partner with him so others can see his big love. God asks us to partner with him so that others can see his big love. Which means we have to somehow work through this. We have to receive God's love. We have to experience God's love. We have to understand God's love. Because if we don't, if we always run around assuming that God's mad at us, that I'm the exception to this big rule, God's discipline is actually because he's angry with me. If, if that's what I think, how will I ever hand another story to anybody else? Like I have to work this through my own life and my own journey and my own experience so that I can give that to other people. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That is euangelion, a pronouncement of good news in the midst of unbelievable chaos that we can look at people and go, God is for you. I know this because I know that God is for me and I've done some pretty stupid stuff and God's still for me. He's still for you too. This is a big deal. Next implication. When we fail, God is patient and gracious in his love. He guides us and helps us to become better and more adjusted in our behavior. When we fail, when we rebel, when we sin, let's call it what it is. When we sin, God is patient and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love. In his love, he guides us helps us to become better and more adjusted in our behavior. This is exactly what I would do for any of my kids. My kids are going to make some big, stupid mistakes in their life. I'm never going to stop loving them. And I'm never going to stop fighting for them. And there may be some huge consequences to stupid mistakes that they make. I'm going to, and it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt as a dad. We're going to get through it together because that's what we do. That's what we do. And that's what God does for us. Next. When we become the anti-story, I made that word up. When we become the anti-story, in other words, God is telling a story about love and the scandalous gospel and acceptance. When we become the anti-story, when we actually become not the people who are struggling to partner with God, but the people who are actually working against this story, when we, when we are adding house to house and field to field at the expense of other people, God is going to step in just like I step in with my kids when they're fighting. When we become the anti-story, God disciplines us. This is because of his loving desires for us and his love for others around us. It is not because he's an angry pagan God of old. It's because he loves us and he's putting the world back together and he loves each and every one of his kids. And when we decide that we're gonna take it out on one of his kids, he steps in and says, not in my house. Not in my house. And sometimes I wish he'd step in a little quicker and a little earlier but we trust in his infinite wisdom because we're kids and he's dad. Last implication. There is a significant distinction between discipline and punishment. There is a significant distinction between discipline and punishment. There are different things. The pagan gods of old punished. They kept you in fear because of what might happen if you didn't obey. This God is a good father and he disciplines his kids, to make them and to pull out of them the very things he put into them from the very beginning. God's big story tells us about God's big love. God's big story tells us about God's big love. How big? Well, you hold in your hands a very small emblem that reminds us of the bigness of God's love. No shadow he wouldn't light up, no mountain he wouldn't climb up. There is nothing that could keep him from coming after each and every one of us. How far would he be willing to go to try to show us that this, you hold in your hand, this is how far. That God would climb up on a cross 
and say, if anything I could do to show you how big my love is for you, I'll do, I'll do whatever it takes. And that's what you hold in your hand, a reminder. God, Jesus wanted us to remember this forever. Until he came back, he wanted us to remember that truth. And so you hold in your hands bread. That night that Jesus was betrayed, that night he had dinner with his disciples, that night they went out and they sang a hymn in the garden, he was arrested, all kinds of things happened that night. But during that night, he took a piece of bread and he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, who were oblivious of the larger picture. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. For ages to come, let's remember the love of Jesus. Later in the meal, he took a cup and he spoke of covenant. In their world, covenant is that invitation, it's that promise. You hold in your hands an invitation and a promise to you today, right here, April 2018. You hold an invitation and a promise in your hand. He took a cup, he passed it to his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's drink to Jesus's big love. Father, the scandal of the gospel is always going to be hard to accept. It is a hard truth to believe. It is difficult to believe in a God who would be a perfect father. We all had earthly fathers, some of them better than others and mothers and all of that, but to believe that somewhere out there is a parent who is everything, a father, a mother character, who is everything that they ought to be, God, we thank you for your faithfulness in light of our faithlessness. We thank you that your steadfast love would never, ever give up on us. We are unbelievably thankful that you would look at us and call us your kids, because you don't have to, but it's who you are. It is who you are. And, and so we praise you for that. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, and we just pray all this in the resurrected name of Christ. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.